0: Brethren, most of you are working hard in your lives, aren't you? To overcome, to be separate from the world, to struggle to be different. I know many of our teens are doing the same thing, and I've been impressed by the efforts that many of you have put forth to try and be different from a world that is so filled with pressure. Even our kids, our children, our young people are working hard to do this, to try and do what's right, even in the face of peer pressure, in the face of friends at school that make things more difficult. Brethren, I know most of us deeply desire to be separate from this Satan-inspired world around us, and we're struggling against that, aren't we? This world and the trials we all face are difficult. And every one of us, every one of you who are working hard to be separate, God is pleased with. Brethren, God is pleased with us. It's hard to be here. God knew that. That's why He sent His Son for us, because He knew that we couldn't do it by ourselves. Brethren, my purpose today is to review with you a goal that I think most of us have and that all of us should have, that of overcoming and becoming more like God. I want to encourage you to continue in that vein, to continue in your path of overcoming. And today I would like to give you some areas of your life to examine more deeply and to help you overcome just a little bit more. I want to encourage you, brethren, not to relax. Not to hit spiritual cruise control. Not to fall into the trap of thinking, I'm doing well enough. Now, if I can just maintain this, I'm going to get to coast into the kingdom of God. We all do struggle. And most of us are really aiming to overcome. To be pure, as we just heard in the song. Make us pure as she sang. Brethren, we were admonished in the sermonette by Mr. Fraser to count the days, to be aware. We are 51 evenings away from the Passover tonight, seven weeks from tomorrow. It's coming soon, but that doesn't mean that just the baptized members in the room need to be thinking about that. No, all of us do. We all need to use the Passover as a marker, as a goal to keep moving forward with. Brethren, God called us to be his ambassadors, didn't he? Ambassadors of his kingdom to this world, representatives of his way of life. In fact, we're not the only ones that are called that. Moses never used the term to refer to the Israelites, but the Israelites were to be a model nation, were they not? Several thousand years ago, they were to stand out to the world representing God and his way of life to the world around them. How do we measure up, brethren, and how should we live our lives as ambassadors for Jesus Christ? How are you doing with that goal? And again, I recognize that most of us are struggling with that goal. We're trying to achieve that goal. But how are you doing with that? As you strive to live a life that's more godly, more pure, in God's sight, what can you do so that you'll do this even in a more successful way. I want to help you become more successful in doing this, brethren. This sermon's for our children. This sermon is for our teens. This sermon is for our young adults. This sermon is for all of us, as we all struggle to grow and to overcome. I want to challenge you with a few questions as we begin here, brethren. If someone could look in on you, and look in on how you live outside of Sabbath services, would they say that you live a life of godly purity as a true ambassador for God's kingdom? And again, I don't want to point a finger here. I want to just encourage you to examine yourself on this. I've got to do the same thing. Why is purity in a Christian so important to God? What can and should we do? In order to make sure that we're living a life that is more and more pure in God's eyes, this topic is one that we've covered at our Living Youth Camps over the years. And it's a topic that relates to Living University's motto recapturing true values. We have to do that, don't we? We have to recapture true values because we live in a world today that has lost those values, that is flushing those values down the toilet. That is, discarding those values as old and draconian. Something of an old society. Now we're progressive. We're in the 21st century. We don't need those things anymore. Yet we are called to recapture those things, to recapture godly purity. Dr. Meredith, in the Living Church News editorial, in the most recent Living Church News, March, April 2011, makes this observation. He says, Mr. Herbert Armstrong taught us that true Christianity is an entire way of life. we do refer to Mr. Armstrong from time to time. Not because we worship him, and that's not why Dr. Meredith did that. But because he set a tone for us. He was our teacher, many of us, for many years. And he was spot on with the scripture when he taught this. Mr. Armstrong taught us that true Christianity is an entire way of life. It's not just a belief in the person of Jesus. It is also sincerely and consciously following Jesus' instruction, quote, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God, unquote. And that's from Luke chapter 4 and verse 4. Christianity is an entire way of life, and it needs to permeate our lives, doesn't it? And many of us are trying to make that happen. And that's a good thing. Christ called us to become perfect, as our Father in heaven is perfect, didn't He? In Matthew 5.48. Paul said we are to be and become ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Again, representatives of His kingdom and His way of life. 2 Corinthians 5.20 mentions that. We want to be more pure, but what is Purity. What does it mean to you? If somebody walked up off the street, next Sunday we're going to have, God willing, as we're planning, a special presentation here in Charlotte. And we should have roughly a couple of hundred visitors for this special presentation. What if them walked up to you and said, you know, I've been wrestling with this concept of purity. What does that mean? You go to this church. I see your name tag. What does it mean to you? How would you answer them? Merriam-Webster's Dictionary Online defines purity several ways. Number one, it's unmixed with any other matter, such as with pure gold. Unmixed with any other matter. It also defines purity as free from dust, dirt, or taint, such as with pure spring water. If you're going to drink water, what kind of water do you want to drink? Do you want it to be pure? Or do you want to be able to see what's in your water? No, we want it to be pure, don't we? Another definition is of purity is it is spotless or stainless. Without spot or without stain. Now, does that sound like a scripture maybe you've read before? Without spot, without blemish? Another definition of purity is free from harshness or roughness and being in tune, such as with a musical tone. And we like pure tones, don't we? If you listen to music, you listen to singing, you want to hear something pure, not something that waffles back and forth, that is hard on the ears. We want it to be pure. Turn with me, brethren, to Psalm chapter 12. As we... Open the scripture here. We've referenced several scriptures so far, but let's look back to the writings of King David in Psalm chapter 12. I'm going to look at a few scriptures on purity. My point today is not to make a case that we should be pure. Uh, We're going to hit a few scriptures that reinforce that. You can continue that Bible study on your own. But my purpose ultimately is to talk about some areas and get into some detail of how we can become more pure. Psalm chapter 12 and verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. Unadulterated words. Words without spot. Words without stain. Words unmixed. God means what He says, and He says what He means, and He's clear. His words are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And when we see the Scripture, we see God gives the analogy of our growth and our overcoming as a purification process, doesn't He? He likens it to the purifying of gold, or right here, the purifying of silver. And how do you purify these metals? You don't extract the metal from the impure things. You actually extract the impure things from the metal. You take these metals and you heat them very hot. And you, in the case of silver, burn off the dross, burn off the impurities. Sometimes we feel like we're in a pressure cooker, don't we? We're in a fire with some of the trials that we have. But God is doing that for a reason. The words of the Lord are pure like silver tried in a furnace. Let's look to Matthew chapter 8. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. Christ's own words in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure in heart? I ask you the question, and if you're taking notes, I suggest, I recommend you write this down. Am I pure in heart? And go meditate on that. Take some time and reflect on that. How do we become more pure in our hearts and in our minds? Christ said, blessed are they who are pure in heart. Why? For they're going to see God one day. What's the implication here? If we're not pure in heart, we won't see our Father in heaven. I'm not going to turn to Exodus 12 and review the Passover with you. But hopefully in the next several weeks, as we approach the Passover, you'll take the time to do this. Remember what happened about five days before the Passover? What the command was for the Israelites? They were to take a a goat or a lamb of one year of age and separate it in preparation for the Passover. And what was the distinction? How were they to distinguish this, this goat or this lamb? It was to be pure, was it not? Without spot, without blemish, you look it over, you look at it in detail, it shouldn't have cuts, it shouldn't have scrapes, it shouldn't have broken bones, it shouldn't have problems with its coat, it shouldn't be sick, it should be pure. And why did it need to be without spot and blemish? What did it point to down the line? The Lamb of God, didn't it? Jesus Christ, this this goat represented the Son of God that would come, and it was to be without spot and without blemish. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We were there just a few minutes ago in the sermonette. We read the first couple of verses of Paul's letter. Ephesians chapter 5. Remember, too, as we read this, that Paul was writing this Message from prison He was in chains when he wrote this Yet he's trying to uplift and encourage the congregation Ephesians chapter 5 We're going to break into a passage That talks about the relationship between a husband and a wife The kind of relationship God wants to see Between a husband and a wife But we're going to break in and we'll start reading In verse 25 It says, husbands love your wives Just as Christ also loved the church And gave himself for her And then Christ begins to go into what the relationship is between he and the church and the relationship he desires to have between he and the church. Verse 26, That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Why is he going to cleanse her? To make her clean, to make her holy, to make her pure. Verse 27, That he might present her to himself a glorious church. That's what's going to happen when he returns, isn't it? The church, the bride of Christ, will marry him. He will present us to himself. That he might present her to himself, a glorious church. Notice this. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. That's what he wants. He wants us pure. He wants us holy. Are there any men out there who'd like to get married someday? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Do you want your bride to be pure or impure? Ladies, anyone like to get married someday? Do you want your groom? Do you want him to be pure or impure? Christ doesn't want to marry a bride that's impure. He wants a bride that is pure in every way and who's made herself ready. And that's what he's called us to do. You know, we can go on with this conversation about purity. We do know that the Father who created all things for, by, and through Christ, the King of the universe, the Almighty Father, will come here one day and he'll set up his throne on the earth as he brings the new jerusalem down what's going to happen to the earth before he comes here and why can't he come right now second peter 3 i won't take time to turn there talks about what will happen the earth has to be pure before he comes in fact we're told that the earth is going to be purified by fire before the Father comes to this earth to make his throne. Because the Father will not put before himself something or someone who is not pure. As we read in Revelation 21 about this new Jerusalem, nobody impure can enter the new Jerusalem. So you get an idea, as we have reviewed for a few minutes here, that God thinks purity is important. Purity is a concept that in today's society is antiquated, though, isn't it? Years ago, women used to talk about purity. But how are you going to be looked at in society today if you talk about purity? Who are you? (laughs) What kind of word is that? This is not the 1800s anymore. Yet God has called us to become pure and work at becoming even more pure than we are now. What I'd like to do for the remainder of the sermon, brethren, is to review some areas of godly purity and challenge you, and challenge me as well. But to challenge you to think about godly purity, and where you are, and where your life matches up with God's standards of purity. Before we do that, though, let me ask you some questions. Whose world do we live in now? Who is the author of society, the trends of Society? The fads of society. The fashions of society. Who's behind all of that? Who's the author? You know, don't you? It's Satan. He is the God of what? This world, this age. He is the author of the society we live in. He is a liar, we're told, and the father of lies. He is the prince of the power of the air. And he tells those lies through the airwaves. Just as easily as we can pick up all kinds of information on cell phones through the air, our brains can pick up on Satan's wavelength. Satan is the great deceiver of the whole world, and he is behind the world we live in, the world we struggle against, isn't he? We've got to keep that in mind as we begin to talk about purity in detail. Because he's the author of impurity. He has orchestrated a world that is impure it's unclean yes it's a mixture of good and evil but there's lots of impurity and we have to find it and root it out mr gerald weston an evangelist in god's church and the regional director in the caribbean work uses an analogy when he talks about the society around us and what i'd like you to do is if you can see me Pay attention to what I'm going to do with my hands. If you're just listening, try and imagine this in your mind. I'm going to create a a line graph where you have God at the top and you have Satan at the bottom. God's way is at the top. Satan's way is at the bottom. And as this line graph continues, it continues in time. Let's go back 50 years, roughly. Think about where society in the world was 50 years ago in terms of being pure and right and godly. Was it more godly 50 years ago than it is today? I think most of us would say yes. Even Satan's world was in much better shape spiritually and related to God's way of life than it is today. And what's been going on? Over time, the world has been going downhill, hasn't it? In terms of purity, in terms of right and wrong. Headed from a closer step to God to a step that's further away from God and closer to Satan. Some would say that the line has gone like this and now it's dropping off because it seems like the morals are just disappearing. How is your life gone? If we could graph your life, put a line graph for your life, in your level of righteousness, in your level of purity over the last, it depends on how old you are, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, I'll stop. What would the line look like? Would it be going up? Have you gotten more pure? Would it be straight? You've you've maintained your purity, or would it be falling and going downhill? All of us aim to be better than the world, don't we? Not superior to the world, but we try and live a life that hopefully is more righteous than the life of the world. We we want to stay. Ahead of the world that way, don't we? But is this happening? The world is headed downhill. The world started here. We in the church are here. Are we staying better than the world but following the world down the hill? Is that possible? We're, we're, we're better than the world in the way we try and live our life. We try and live more of a righteous life. So we're, we're staying ahead of them. But are we following them down the hill? Toward more of Satan's way of life. Are we staying level? You know, the world is heading down and we're staying level. Which means we're becoming different than the world. But we're not changing. What, there's a parable about that, isn't there? parable of the talents? Or parable of the minas? What does it say if you are given a gift and you stay the same with it? Christ says, give it to the person who grew. And you're going to have to take a walk. So what does God call us to do? As the world is going downhill, he calls us to go up, doesn't he? But that creates a really difficult situation in the world, doesn't it? In the lives that we live. Because as we go up and the world goes down, we become very different than the world around us. And that's hard because we stand out more and more. And it takes guts to do that. It takes faith to do that. God's got to help give us that strength. But we know there's going to be a reward if we do that. We don't want to be just a few steps ahead of the world, but follow them down the hill, do we? So what I want to do for the rest of the sermon is encourage you on a number of points here. To examine yourself in more detail, Paul says to do that. God says through Paul to do that. Look at yourself. See how you can change. And again, knowing that most of us are trying hard. You're not doing badly. But we need to keep trying to struggle away from the world because it's trying to pull us down. If you look at something that's pure, pure water, if you take absolutely pure distilled water, it's just H2O, and you put it in an environment open to the air, it's going to suck impurities out of the air over time. If you take anything that's completely pure, it'll, it will... it will draw toward it impurities if we're trying to become pure the more pure we become the more we're going to attract impurity and just the the law it's the way it works so we're going to have to struggle harder and I want to give you some areas to keep struggling in the first area that I want to encourage you to think about in terms of purity is purity in thought purity in thought purity in the way that you think brethren ask yourself How pure are my thoughts? What do I allow myself to think about and to ponder over? What have you thought about so far today? If you look back, evaluating yourself. Now, I have not read your mind, and I can't do that. So I can't condemn, and I won't. But if you look back over your thoughts since you woke up this morning, what have you thought about? Have they been godly thoughts? Have they been thoughts that are appropriate for the Sabbath? Have they been uplifting thoughts? Or have other thoughts crept in? Satan will shoot fiery darts and he'll try to get in. Have we allowed him in? Or have we pushed him away? Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, please. 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll start reading here in verse 1. Peter was inspired to write, Beloved, I I now write to you this second epistle, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Peter was writing these letters to the church to encourage them. And he says to stir up their minds by way of reminder. To stir up their pure minds. He knew that purity was there. But he also knew that we grow weary doing good, and that if we're not constantly working, the purity can become contaminated. And so he admonishes he admonished the church then, and he admonishes us, stirring to stir up our minds, our pure minds. <clears throat> Philippians chapter four. Philippians four gives us some guidelines on how to use our minds. And brethren, I encourage you again, ask yourself the question, how pure were my thoughts before I came to church? How pure are your thoughts right now? How pure are your thoughts during the week? If the person sitting next to you could look in on your thoughts during the week, would you be embarrassed? You know, there is somebody who does actually, there's somebody who does look in on our thoughts. God and Christ can look in at any time, can't they? They can know what we're thinking. So our thoughts aren't private completely. Philippians chapter 4. Let's start reading in verse 4. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, Rejoice. That's something that's difficult to do always, isn't it? Because our thoughts can overwhelm us sometimes and make it difficult to rejoice. You know, I've got this trial and this problem and this person does this. But what does God say? He doesn't say, rejoice if you're motivated to rejoice. He doesn't say, rejoice if you have time to rejoice. He says, rejoice always. And again, I say, rejoice. Are our minds able to do that? Are we in control of our minds to the point where we can? Verse 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Verse 6, again, this is... Verse 6 is talking about our thoughts that tie in with our feelings. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to to God. But be anxious for nothing. Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 6 talks about how if we worry, we essentially sin. Worry can be sin. Because we're not trusting God to take care. Paul is saying, don't have anxious thoughts. Do we have a tendency to be anxious? If so, God knows that and so does our adversary. And our adversary is going to try and pump those anxious thoughts up. We have to fight against that. Let's continue, verse 7. And the peace of God, if we're not anxious, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds through Jesus Christ. This is partly how we get to a pure mind. Verse 8, finally, brethren, and here's the challenge, but the guideline. What are you supposed to be thinking today? What am I supposed to be thinking today and every day? Where should our minds be? Where should we struggle to keep our minds? Verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are Pure. Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. How are our thoughts supposed to be? Holy, just, noble, true, pure, lovely, of good report. God wants us to struggle to try and keep our minds here. Yes, we will have trials. We'll have difficulties in life that will make us sad, that will make us upset, that will get us frustrated from time to time, but we've got to struggle to grab and reach a hold of our minds and bring them back to this state, to try and make those thoughts godly thoughts. I ask you again, how pure are your thoughts? Psalm 119. Psalm 119, the psalmist here writing uh, predominantly about obedience to the law in this psalm and praising the law of God. What does he have to say in this particular verse and what does it have to do with purity? Psalm 119, verse 113. Psalm one nineteen, one thirteen. 113. He says, I hate the double-minded. I hate the double-minded. It means... Divided in heart and mind. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Are we double-minded at times? Divided in our heart, divided in our mind. We know what's right, but we, we do the other thing. That doesn't mean that we're evil, and it doesn't mean we failed. Paul struggled the same way when you look it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But it's something David hated. He hated to become that way. And, he, and we are to be that way as well. Again, brethren, what do you think about most of the time? What do the attitudes result in that come from the thoughts that you have? The thoughts that you have, do they result in things that are positive? Mr. Fraser mentioned the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, faith, temperance. Do the thoughts that you have result in that? Or do they result in the works of the flesh? Jealousies. Selfish ambitions, outbursts of wrath. How do our thoughts manifest themselves in our lives? We can tell if our thoughts are pure, in part by what they result in and the way we feel after we've been thinking them. If we have certain thoughts and we feel frustrated and we feel angry after we're done, we want to get revenge with someone. We want to get back at someone. If we have those kind of feelings after we're done, the thoughts haven't been pure. They're not of God. They're inspired probably by Satan. So these are things we have to learn. And I encourage you, keep struggling in these areas. Keep looking into your life. Challenge yourself in relation to your thoughts. Let's talk about another area of purity. An area that's very closely related to our thoughts. Any guesses? Any guesses? What it, what it might be how about purity in speech purity in speech ask yourself how clean and pure is my speech and what i have to say how clean and pure is the language brethren that we allow ourselves to listen to i was an athlete in high school and spent a lot of time in locker rooms And many of the athletes and the coaches that I spent time around did not have pure language. They had quite the opposite, maybe not as bad as some sailors, but they were aiming high. What I found as I was around these people, I didn't use the language they used, but when I would get frustrated, guess what would pop into my mind? The language that they used. and it taught me a few things. I've got to distance myself from this. I wasn't just spending time in the locker room. You sort of have to do that after you're done working out or practicing or at a meet. You have to get clean. But I tried to keep my distance from the locker room because of the language that was there, because it spilled over. And It got stuck in my head. How pure is the language we allow ourselves to listen to? How do we begin to think when we hear many people talking about un- righteous things we sort of pick up the same ideas don't we we have to be careful what kind of television programs we listen to what kind of radio programs we listen to you know many or a number in the church listen to very conservative talk shows why do we do that? because that conservative perspective is much more like our perspective in many ways isn't it? these people don't believe in abortion they believe it's wrong These people don't believe in homosexuality. They believe it's wrong, so let's listen to them. But what happens sometimes in these talk shows and talk radio? How do they refer to the leaders of the countries that they're in? Oftentimes they put them down. They talk very negatively about the leaders. They talk about the idiocy of the presidency or the prime ministry. And what happens if we listen to that a lot? It can get stuck in our heads, can't it? And then we begin to repeat it. What does Jude say about reviling accusations, even against sinners? You can look it up. Not even the angels will bring a reviling accusation against Satan and the devil, is what Jude was inspired to write. We've got to be careful with what we listen to. Yes, we have sinners that lead our nations, But as Mr. Meredith has referred and reminded us frequently, we are the church of the forgiven. We're sinners as well. So we can't bring those reviling accusations. That's for God to do. But if we expose ourselves to these concepts, the more we do, the more they become our thoughts, and the more they become what we speak. Do we listen to modern comedy much on television or radio or movies? Many people don't. But what is modern comedy filled with? Filth, isn't it? Innuendo, double entendre, and oftentimes not even the innuendo. It's just straight to the cut with things that aren't correct. How clear is our humor as we speak and we tell jokes? I could not do what Mr. League does. He gets up here, and he's pretty safe most of the time with what he says. If I got up here and started rattling jokes... Sooner or later, I'm going to tell one that's not going to work, and it's not appropriate. This is why we encourage our song leaders and others, be very, very careful with your humor. Because it's so easy to get into humor that either puts somebody or a group down, and what happens when we put somebody down? We're lifting ourselves up. That's not godly. Or it's just crass or inappropriate. So we've got to be careful with humor. Romans chapter 6. Paul makes an observation here with speech in Romans 6 verse 18 Romans chapter 6 verse 18 and having been set free from sin you became slaves of righteousness hmm that's not the verse that I was looking for Anyway, let's go to Titus chapter 2. Chapter 2. As we ask the question, Is my speech pure? Is my speech pure? One way to examine that question is to step out of ourselves and say, Okay, if other people were listening to me and could listen in, how would they evaluate my speech? Would they agree that my speech is pure? Or would they say, you know what? There's some contamination in my speech. Titus chapter 2 and verse 8. We are to be of sound speech that cannot be condemned. That one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. This is a pretty interesting piece of work here. A pretty interesting prod, a pretty interesting challenge. God's inspiring us to be of speech that is so sound... And right and pure that even an adversary, someone who's looking for a loose brick, couldn't find it. Do we have speech that's like that? Is our speech pure? So pure that somebody who's looking to find fault couldn't find it? That's a hard question. But it's something to examine ourselves on. Young people, is your speech pure? Everyone else is your speech pure. What can you do to purify it, to clean it up, if it needs to be cleaned up? Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58. Isaiah chapter 58 talks about and is a condemnation against Israel. And in this chapter, God is spending some time also talking about the Sabbath. Isaiah 58. And verse 13, we'll break in here to the thought. He says, If you turn away your foot from keeping the Sabbath, doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor Him. What are we supposed to do in honoring God on the Sabbath? Not doing your own ways. This is something I guess we all struggle with again. Should I do this on the Sabbath? Should I not? Would God be pleased with this? Would He not? as I try and put on more of the mind of Christ, would Christ do this on the Sabbath? So it's something we all work with and try and grow in understanding with. Not doing your own ways on the Sabbath, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. We're not even to speak our own words on the Sabbath. What does that mean? Are we supposed to come in here and be silent? No, we're supposed to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, especially as the end approaches. We're supposed to fellowship. But what does it mean to speak our own words? I was corrected by a church member at Sabbath services a few weeks ago. I don't, I don't think he intended to correct me. And I, he may not even realize he corrected me. But I walked up. We hadn't talked in a while. And I knew there were some job issues going on. And I said, so how are, how'd things go this week? I saw that you had some work. And he said, it's the Sabbath. I'm not going to talk about work. And I I said something else just to find out a little bit. And he said, no, it's the Sabbath. I can't talk about work on the Sabbath. And I thought, okay, should I have asked the question? It's not wrong to talk about some things that we do, maybe some lessons we've learned during the week through our jobs. But what do we talk about on the Sabbath? One of the congregations I had the privilege of serving, we had a mechanic in the congregation. Apparently, he was very good at what he did. And the brethren knew it. And many of the brethren would come up to him on the Sabbath and start talking about problems they're having with his vehicles, with their vehicles. This is the only time during the week they saw him. And so, wow, here's a mechanic. I've got an opportunity to get some feedback and some guidance and maybe set up an appointment for next week. Is that what God wants to happen on the Sabbath? What do we talk about? What do we think about? My wife and I, shortly after we were married, were traveling to services one Sabbath. And it was before we had children. We were going through some financial trials. None of you have probably ever gone through those. <clears throat> and we're driving. This is in Wyoming. Two-hour drive to church. And I was just talking about how I was frustrated with some of our finances. And I went on and on. And then I started listening to myself. And I thought, Ooh. This is not the day to talk about these things. Do we talk on the Sabbath about godly things? What does this day picture? This day is the seventh day of the week, and it points to a time that represents 1,000 years of peace that will be ushered into this earth. This world will be different. When this Sabbath day is fulfilled and the world experiences a rest, a true rest that it has never experienced before, the land will rest, the animals will rest, and all people will rest. We are eating dinner last night with some brethren, and I was just thinking and, and praying silently, God, let the time come when all can do this on a Friday evening, to be together, to eat together, to talk about God and His plan. How pure are our words on the Sabbath, brethren. I encourage you to ponder that. Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Again, we know David as a man after God's own heart. Was David perfect? Was David pure in the life that he lived? No then how could he be a man after God's own heart? It's because David yearned to be perfect, and when he saw what he did that was wrong, he repented with his whole heart. And he struggled, and he, he worked his whole life to try and become more like God. Psalm chapter 19 and verse 14. It says, David, musing, talking with God, says, let the words of my mouth, let the words of my mouth, And the meditation of my heart, my thoughts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. God wants us to have this attitude. He wants us to have this goal. I think many of you have this goal. Keep struggling. Keep working at it. What happens if you don't watch your words? James talks about what a forest fire the the tongue can kindle. And you've been there, many of you. I have too. We have to watch what comes out of our mouth. Brethren, how pure are you in thoughts? What can you do to become more pure in the way you think and in the way you talk? Let's, let's look at another area. Let me challenge you a little bit more. And again, when we talk about self-examination, we cannot be broad. We have to be very specific with self-examination. If you want to overcome... And I want to overcome and We want to be more like God. The big overarching principles are important. But if we really want to change, we've got to dig down deep. And so I want to challenge you with that. Again, not pointing the finger at you. Because what happens if I point the finger? I've got three pointing back at me and one blaming the guy upstairs. So we're in this together. We're all in this together. Purity in entertainment. Purity in entertainment. How pure is the entertainment you allow to pass before your eyes and pass through your ears? Do we like entertainment? Yes, we do. We enjoy it. We had the opportunity, uh, some of my family and a number of Living University students and other brethren this week, to go listen to a jazz ensemble. It was fun. It was good music. It was uplifting. It was encouraging, I think, for most of us. Different for others who haven't listened to a lot of jazz. But it was okay. It was right. There's nothing wrong with it. We like entertainment. We like entertainment that's enjoyable. Why do we like the Feast of Tabernacles so much? Now, the thing that comes back on all of our surveys as being most important is the powerful messages and the wonderful fellowship. What else? We like the entertainment that's involved. Sometimes it's the entertainment of just being with people and talking with each other. Other times it's doing something new and unique as we travel to different areas of the country or different areas of the world. Entertainment is not wrong, but it can be wrong. How pure is the entertainment that you expose yourself to in terms of television, in terms of movies, in terms of books that you read, in terms of music you listen to? In terms of what you allow yourself to be exposed to on the Internet, ask yourself some of these questions. And again, if you're taking notes, maybe write down some of these questions so you can look at yourself later on. Is the entertainment that I watch, listen to, or read really pure in a godly way? What type of example do I set for others in the entertainment I allow myself to be exposed to and talk about? Others like my family, my children, my friends my fellow brethren. It's really interesting to jump on Facebook and look at somebody's profile. Those of you who are not on Facebook, bear with me for a moment. But to look at somebody's profile and to see what their favorite movie is and what their favorite genre of music is and what their favorite readings are, books, tells you a lot about them. It also tells you the level of purity that they're aiming for, if you know anything about what they're watching and listening to. Sometimes it's shocking. You see these people at church and you think, wow, this is a really wholesome person. I am really, I want to be like that person. And then you get on their Facebook profile and you think, whoa, it's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This person is very different to the world in electronic form than they are at church. Some of you know what I'm talking about. How do we portray ourselves in the entertainment that we're exposed to and that we expose ourselves to? Ask yourself the question, do I watch rated R movies? Multiple times from the pulpit, we've been admonished, don't watch these things. Even PG-13 movies and some PG movies you've got to be careful with. It's amazing what they'll allow into some PG movies today. As the bar drops... Why shouldn't we be watching these rated R movies? Why does it get the rating? Gratuitous sex, gross violence, and ungodly language. These are the three reasons they get those ratings. What about the content? Do I view or read view or read sexually explicit content, or content focusing on other ungodly things like witchcraft? or demonism you ever notice the TV shows today how much demonic television there is today people being possessed taken over following ghosts what are some of the most popular readings among young people today works of fiction what are they about demons vampires witches how much do we expose ourselves to that Let me ask you a challenging question, a really challenging question. and I've got to ask myself this question, too, because we are aiming to be pure, aren't we? We want to be the people God wants us to be, yet we live in a world that pushes us in the opposite direction. Ask yourself, do I put up with a little foul language, a little violence, a little sex? Because overall, the movie was really good. There are only two or three bad sections of the movie. Really bad words. Am I going overboard? Am I being a prude? Do we fall into Satan's trap of saying something like, that movie was really good. There are only a couple of really bad scenes. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 1. And see the admonition we hear from our Lord. The one who wants to purify his church and come back To a pure bride. What does he say? Isaiah chapter 1. As we try and get into the head of God, as we try and put on the mind of Jesus Christ, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15: When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, he says. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away evil from your eyes and doings from before my eyes. Excuse me. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. God says, don't do evil before me. Don't engage in evil. Don't let yourself be exposed to evil. What does God think about our entertainment? Here's a good rule of thumb. Years ago, a number of years ago, Dr. Meredith gave a sermon on what would Jesus really do. My dad taught my brother and I something when we were younger. He said, would you do that if Jesus Christ were sitting on the sofa right beside you? Think about what you read. Think about what you view on the Internet. Think about the movies you see or the videos you watch. If Jesus Christ was sitting on the sofa right next to you, would you do it? If a child was sitting on the seat right next to you, would you do it? If an old lady was sitting on the seat next to you, would you do it? We've got to analyze ourselves on these things. What does God have to say about just a little bit of evil? Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel 20. And again, brethren, we're all aiming to overcome. We're approaching the Passover. And I know we want to become more pure. So we've got to ask the hard questions. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 7. And I said to them, "Each of you throw away the abominations which are before your eyes and do not defile yourselves with idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God." Do we have abominations before our eyes? Do I've got to ask myself, do I let that happen? And you know what? To be frank with you, yeah, I do let it happen sometimes. I'm not talking about really, really bad stuff, but things that my eyes probably shouldn't see or my ears shouldn't hear sometimes, I let myself see them and hear them. Is my Father in Heaven pleased with me on that? He's pleased when I turn it off and I say, you know what, God, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I need to overcome here. But he's probably not too pleased with me while I'm doing it. He's probably saying, Scott, you know better than that. Why are you doing this? You're giving in to Satan. You're following his way. Question. Is even a little bit of filth okay? Anybody ever heard of hemorrhagic fever? Hemorrhagic fever is a condition brought on by a virus, and we've seen more of it in this modern age, and we'll continue to do that. The virus gets in the system, it creates a a hemorrhagic fever state, and usually within 24 to 48 hours, the organs inside a person, your stomach, your lungs, your heart, liquefy. They turn to liquid. You bleed to death internally. The viruses that cause hemorrhagic fever are incredibly powerful. And a very, very tiny amount can cause great damage. If I went home this evening, and I ran the bathtub for you, and I put just just one teeny, tiny drop of a virus that causes hemorrhagic fever in the bathtub, would you jump in and take a bath? Some might. Most of us would say, no, I'm not going to go near that thing. What about one little teeny tiny drop of evil before our eyes or in our ears? Does it mean we're going to miss out on the kingdom of God? No, probably not if we repent. But what does God think about it? David elsewhere says, I hate evil. That's one thing I want to learn to do like David. I want to learn to hate evil like that. I think most of you do as well. Let's talk about one more area. I'd like to challenge you, if I can, on one more point. Or should I quit? I went from preaching to meddling a while ago, didn't I? But you're my brothers and my sisters. God has called all of us to be in His kingdom, to overcome. He wants to see us there. He built us in His image. He doesn't want us to fall short. God knows that a little leaven, a little sin, leavens the whole lump. You let it in, and sometimes it's like opening the floodgates. I know you want to overcome. I know you're aiming to do that. You give me strength when I talk to you, and I see you struggling. here's one more area that we all need to keep in mind. Purity in appearance. Purity in appearance, the way we look. How pure do we look? Let's go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. This is a scripture that many will bring up if you talk about appearance. Don't judge me. Have you ever been told that? Have you ever said that? Matthew 7, verse 1, it says, Judge not that you be not judged. The word judge here means to condemn, to put down, to relegate to some future penalty. We shouldn't do that, should we? We shouldn't judge other people. They're not going to be in the kingdom because of what they wear. No, that's God's call. God has to look at the heart. God does look at the heart. Yet at the same time, looks... And the way we look are important, aren't they? Let's skip down to verse 16 here. What are we told? You'll know them by their fruits. False prophets. By the way they act, by the way they talk. In some cases, even by the way they look. God looks at the heart, but we're human. We can't read the heart. And so we try and understand the heart by what we see. We look at things like fruits. Fruits of the Holy Spirit. They've got love. They've got joy. They're peace filled. Boy, are they patient. Wow. Those things reflect the heart. But some other things can reflect the heart too, can't they? First impressions, as the cliche says, are the lasting ones, aren't they? You only have a f- one chance to make that first impression. And unfortunately, that first impression is going to carry. Solomon in Proverbs talks about how once you hurt your reputation, it takes a long time to fix it. So, what about first impressions? Ask yourself Does my appearance ever contradict the way of life that I'm trying to live? In the godly impression, I'm trying to leave. Does my appearance ever contradict that? I had a visit with a gentleman a number of years ago, and he was excited about the truth. He was finding out and learning more, and he wanted to be a minister. He believed that God called him into the ministry. Mr. Leake, have you visited him? We we visit individuals like this frequently. But he was sincere. At least he came across sincere. He was in big blue jeans and a baggy T-shirt. And he knew that I I showed up for the visit, and I had on summertime in Florida, so I had on a tie and a shirt I didn't have a coat on. But I was dressed up. And he looked at my outfit, and he looked at what he had, and he said, you know, God doesn't care what I look like. And people won't either. They care what comes out of my mouth. But if the image of the person seems to contradict what comes out of their mouth, then the audience is left with a problem, aren't they? If I was up here in flip-flops, and my hair is all disheveled, and I had on a muscle shirt... And I'm preaching to you about purity? How would that go over? Not so well. Would you be judging me? No, you'd be confused. So we've got to think about the image that we portray. Because actions do speak louder than words many times, don't they? You've, You've heard the cliche, your actions speak so loud I can't hear what you're saying. Because people can't get beyond the image that they're seeing. What about um, the way we look? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Paul at the very beginning says, imitate, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. And then over the next several verses, he begins to go into a topic that some have confused, but he's talking about hair lengths for men and for women. Verse 4, um, he says, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, for that is one and the same, as if her head were shaved. Some have said, You know, this is referring to hats. A woman has to have a hat or a, a scarf on her head when she comes to church. That's not what this is talking about. And Paul clarifies it at the end of the passage. Let's go down to verse 9. Man was created for... Wo- man; Nor was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, the woman ought to have, her have a symbol of authority on her head. Because of the angels. Longer hair, appropriate hair for a woman is a symbol of authority. Bowing to authority. And it says that it's even an important example for the angels why is it important for them 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 3 says one day the saints are going to judge angels so here they are serving these people that they watched cre- be created out of dirt in Eden and they know what the potential is of these people one day they're going to have to serve us so the example we set for them today is going to stick with them. You think, you know, we talk about how elephants have long memories. I wonder how long the memories are of angels. We don't want to put a stumbling block before them. Interesting piece here. But let's, let's finish up here. <clears throat> Verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, yes, this is not talking about hats in church. Talk talking about hair. If a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For hair is given to her as a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we do have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. What does that mean? That means if somebody comes in, and they're new, and they don't know, and a guy walks in with a big, long ponytail, we don't attack him and say, Oh, you just broke the law. You've got to cut your hair or you can't come in. No, we give them time and space. But for those of us, all of us, who are aiming to overcome and become more pure, put on more of the mind of Christ, this applies. Men are to have shorter hair, ladies, longer hair. I'm not going to give you lengths today. I'll let Dr. Meredith do that. (laughs) General rule of thumb. And this this principle comes from Exodus 22, actually, where God is talking about clothing for men and women. And in Exodus 22, God says men shouldn't wear women's clothing and women shouldn't wear men's clothing. General rule of thumb with hair, you should be able to tell from the back of a person whether they're a man or a woman. Simple. You should be able to tell from the back whether they're a man or a woman. If you can't, you might want to look at this scripture and say, okay, where's my purity? Am I where God would want me to be? Let's look at another aspect of dress. What about our uh, aspect? Clothing, dress. Is dressing in style a bad thing? This is a mixture of good and evil in this world. Style doesn't have to be bad. But who is the originator? Of many of the styles, I would say of all the styles, it's his world. Yes, Satan the devil. Dressing to be in style can be a big mistake. Where do, and and we're going to talk about women's clothing to start with, because frankly, Satan picks on women and girls much more heavily in this area than he does men. Doesn't he? Ladies, how hard is it to find appropriate, modest clothing today? a challenge you know it's getting hard to do it for little girls there's this concept of g girls getting older younger and you, you go to the stores and the clothes for little girls look like women's clothes they're scant and they're sexy and I don't want my eight-year-old looking like that do you want yours or your granddaughter no Satan is hammering women hard on this who comes up with, do you know, who inspires most of the women's fashions today? Who inspires these women's fashions? And you might say, well, you know, I'm not wearing the, the high fashion stuff. I'm buying my clothes at a department store somewhere else. Well, all the new trends in the department stores are modeled after the high fashion. Who comes up with the, these fashion? Unconverted Homosexual European men Check it out That's who Creates the fashions that Come out every year Unconverted homosexual European men Under whose Inspiration You know the answer to that So we've got to be careful Not every fashion out there is awful But Satan really picks on ladies In this way We've, we've encouraged ladies for years. Find styles that are timeless, that may not be at the, at the highest point of fashion, but they're going to be relatively in fashion into the future. God, again, stated in Deuteronomy 22 in verse 5 that men shouldn't dress like women and women shouldn't dress like men. So we need to be aware of some of those basic things. First Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is talking about modesty here as he passes on wise advice to Timothy. 1 Timothy 2, in verse 9, verse 8, he says, "...I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, or discreet apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing." But which is proper for men, profess- for women professing godliness with good works. This isn't saying don't braid your hair. This is not saying don't wear gold or pearls. This is being done for show. Some of these ladies were braiding their hair with gold in it. Is it wrong to wear designer clothing? No, probably not, as long as it's modest. But if we're wearing the designer clothing, so that people can see the labels on our designer clothing. That match our designer pocketbook and our designer shoes and our designer jewelry. That's the problem. and That's what Paul was addressing here. Be modest and don't show off. Why do we dress up to come to church? It shouldn't be to show off. It should be to honor God, our Father. I was at a funeral a number of years ago. And it was a funeral for an older person, one of the pallbearers at the funeral. Showed up in blue jeans with holes in them. His underwear was sticking out of his blue jeans. And he had on a t-shirt that was too small. And he was a pallbearer at the funeral for a family member. I met him afterward. He was a nice guy. But he had no idea of the disrespect he was showing by what he wore. We are respecting God when we come before him. And we try to look appropriate before him. Revelation 18 Chapter 4, we're told what? Most of you know this by heart. Revelation 18.4. Come out of her, my people. Don't be partakers in her sin. Let me read a line from an article by Mr. Rod McNair. In the Living Church News, September, October 2009. He says, to fathers, to husbands, as the head of a home, it's your responsibility. Fathers may be more comfortable dealing with their sons' problems but they also have a responsibility to daughters. As author Meg Meeker explains, let your daughter know that modesty is just another form of respect and that she shouldn't follow fashion trends and flaunt her sexuality because others do. When you teach her that modesty is an important way to protect her honor and her integrity, she'll understand that too because kids have an innate sense of modesty. You have to be your daughter's protector, Fathers, grandfathers, and fight the culture that lies to her about sex and denies her rights for modesty. He's quoting that from a book entitled Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters 10 Secrets Every Father Should Know. We've got to do that today. What's the big deal with the low cut blouses and the high skirts? What's the big deal? We're all humans, we all have legs and chests. What's the big deal? Well, back to Eden, God covered those things on Eve, no doubt. Why is it a big deal? Do you know how men and women are wired? What gets a woman excited? Conversation, in many ways. Meaningful conversation draws a woman to her husband. What gets a man excited? It's not rocket science, is it? (laughs) Flesh. In a matter of seconds. I kid you not. So why do we need to make sure that we cover appropriately? We are coming before God, especially on the Sabbath or at the feast. We're coming before God. We want people's minds to be on God, not on our flesh. Most of our women, I think about all of our women, young women and old, try hard to dress nicely, to come before God, but you need to be aware. What happens if you're wearing a skirt that's above your knees and you sit down? It goes halfway up your thigh. Which can be distracting if there's a guy sitting next to you, whether it's your husband or not. What about a low-cut blouse? You look in the mirror, ladies, and you say, oh, that, that's not too low. Are men taller or shorter than women? <laughs> What's the view that a man has? I'll give you a hint. Lean over in front of the mirror. I'm not trying to be crass. I'm trying to be straightforward with you and be helpful. Moms, teenage girls, you need to know these things. This is what others look at. You know, it's, as a minister sometimes, it's, it's a challenge to speak to an audience. Because sometimes I can't look at the people in the front row. I'm either going to look up somebody's skirt or down their shirt. It's, it's uncomfortable. This is God's Sabbath. I don't need to be thinking about that. But this is what we do to our brothers, ladies, if we're not careful with what we wear. Not, the guys aren't necessarily going to be tempted in the wrong way, but it's going to be distracting. So we need to be aware of that. Husbands, work with your wives and your daughters on this. It's not about denying you the opportunity to dress nicely. It's about being aware. This is love. It's, it's the implementation of the commandment to love our brothers and sisters. We need to be aware. Be careful. We have a, actually uh, a line in the dress code for our on-campus girls, women, at Living University. And we recommend that their skirts be at or below their knees when they're sitting. And that's not our idea that's you see that all over the place in conservative religious schools why because when you sit down you're not showing lots of things when you get in the car to drive ladies that skirt is covering your knees and the guy in the car next to you isn't looking at your legs It's just being smart it's being wise and it's keeping with that second commandment of love guys guys don't usually have the issue with revealing too much In their clothing. There are some cowboy cultures, actually, that I've lived in where you have to deal with that issue with the guys that wear the spandex jeans. But we have a different problem with men's clothing today, don't we? What is in vogue for a lot of men's clothing in the way men dress? It's just sloppy. You know, you've got the hip hop culture, which transcends race. You've got the hip hop culture that says you wear these jeans that are 12 sizes too big, and you buckle the waist around your thighs. The underwear's out the back, the shirt's too big, the baseball cap's on sideways. I was at a stoplight one time, and it was a big intersection, and this fellow had a package under his arm. His jeans were too big and down around his thighs, and of course, he had to hold on to the belt while he walked. Or he would lose his pants, seriously. And the light changed. And he looked around, and he's got this package, and he's holding his pants, and he's sort of hobbling across the street. (laughs) And that's cool. This is part of the draw for men, young men, in society today. But the other side is sloppy. Sloppy. I, what's what's the, a real common hairstyle among young men today? I call it the I just woke up look. <laughs> the hair is just all over the place. They put some mousse in it, mess it up, get it to stick out. And then they go to work or, or an interview. You know, when I, once in a while my wife and I have the opportunity to go out for a meal. And it's really interesting because we'll see ladies dressed up. And the guy next to them looks like he just came off the construction site. And I'm not putting down construction workers. There is dress that is appropriate for different lines of work. But here she looks great, and what did she drag in behind him? And so for men, we have to struggle to look appropriate, to look nice when it's appropriate. Brethren, we could go on. I encourage you to look in some other areas of purity in your life. There's probably ten or fifteen more we could have talked about. God desires us to become pure, doesn't he? He wants us to overcome. He wants to return, he wants his son to return to a pure bride. I encourage you keep up the good work. Keep struggling for more purity in the things you think, in the way you talk, in the entertainment you look for. Struggle. Keep fighting and swimming upstream with the fashions that you choose to wear and the clothes you choose to wear. Godly leaders, brethren, resist the lead of Satan's society and aim to follow the lead of Jesus Christ. They aim not to follow the world and follow worldly guidelines for what is right. Look for the senior church members. Look to the ministry for the examples. Find who you can follow like that. Brethren, we all have to fight to be, spe- to be pure in a spiritually contaminated world. I want to end as I try and encourage you with a quote from Dr. Meredith from the same article, Living Church News, entitled True Christianity, a Way of Life, page 21, March, April 2011. He says, so I'd like to encourage all of you, brethren, young and old alike, to think again about the way of life of a true Christian like Mr. Armstrong, we will not be able to be perfect and perfectly restore every phase and facet of this way in the living church of God. But we can try. We can make substantial progress if we zealously seek to honor God in all of these ways. And if we start now, today, when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ returns to this earth, we will joyfully experience the time of restoration of all things which God has spoken of by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began, Acts 3.21. The fullness of this way of life will permeate the entire world under Christ's rulership. But as pioneers, as participants in the first resurrection, with the wonderful opportunity to teach this way, we need to learn and practice this way in our lives now. May God guide and inspire all of us to do that. Brethren, keep struggling. Keep moving forward. Keep aiming to become more pure. Your Father in heaven is proud of you.